All right, good morning. We are in a series on the Divided Kings, and uh, finally this week, we and next week, we get to hear about a good king. We get to hear about somebody who did something well, he started well, did not necessarily end the best, um, but by and large, this is a generally good experience. And uh, I want to just tell you my point up front, <clears throat> and then we are going to jump into his story. Uh, the point is this, you could be the generation that changes eternity for generations. You could be the generation in your family that changes the eternity of generations to come. There are so many people in this church who you are first-generation Christians. <clears throat> and because God intervened in your life, because you trusted in Jesus Christ, because one day in the midst of your brokenness and you, your sin, you came before God and you said, I am a sinner who needs your help. I need you to save me. Um, I'm in over my head. I can't do this. You demand righteousness. I have none. And you came before God and you repented of your sin. You trusted in Jesus. And you, you declared your faith that Jesus is God in the flesh and that God raised him from the dead. And God saved you that day. And God gave you the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and you may have been the first in your entire family. And then your kids, they come along. And then maybe your kids trust in Christ. And they finally realize that they are sinners who desperately need a Savior. And I have a mom and dad said amen. And then their kids believe in Jesus Christ. And the generations just go on and on and on. I'll tell you my story. Sometime in the early 80s, my mom realized the depth of her sin. She realized that before God, she needed absolute salvation. She realized she needed his Holy Spirit, and so she confessed her sin. She trusted in Jesus. She grew up in a um, version of Christianity that told her, you need to be good enough. You have to accumulate enough good works. My mom finally realized the Bible did not teach that explicitly, and she trusted in Jesus, stopped relying on her good, own good works. Well, my dad eventually came to Christ because of my mom's faithfulness. My mom's boys came to Christ because of her faithfulness. I want to draw attention to my oldest brother, Pat. <clears throat> Pat uh, started dating Carrie Morgan, and Carrie um, trusted in Christ while they were dating. Well, they got married, and then her mom and dad trusted in Christ. And then Carrie's sister trusted in Christ and married another godly man. They are now pregnant with their first child, and they're praying that this child would trust in Jesus Christ. My mom um, had myself. I've been able to watch a number of people personally come to faith in Jesus Christ. Those people marry or are already married and see their spouse come to faith in Jesus Christ. They raise kids that get to see someone come to Jesus Christ. I, it's a simple illustration to say my mom in the 1980s came to faith in Jesus, confessed her sin, and generations, thank you very much, generations have been transformed because of her. Families that she didn't even know existed believe in Jesus Christ because one day God intervened into her life. And here's just my simple question for you. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in him? And if you are the first generation, if you're the first one in your entire generation to come to faith in Jesus Christ, watch what God can do from generation to generation to generation. We're going to meet a king who trusted in God, who, unlike all of his ancestors, came to faith. Now, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 14. <clears throat> the happy birthday song, apparently... Got a frog in my throat. We're going to meet King Asa, <clears throat> and I want to tell you um, about King Asa's um, heritage, his family 
heritage here. His great-great-grandpa was King David. You guys know King David. David's epitaph was simple. He was a man after God's own, fill in the blank, heart. His great-grandpa, Solomon, here's his, his epitaph from 1 Kings 11. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Did Solomon follow David's words or David's actions? His actions. And what happens when one generation follows the actions of their fathers? They usually go worse. They take the sins, and the sins become deeper and worse unless God himself intervenes in that generation. We'll go to Asa's grandpa, Rehoboam. 2 Chronicles 12, 14 simply says this, And he did evil. Why? For he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Rehoboam had Abijah, who was Asa's dad. And do you think Abijah um, followed in his father's footsteps? The answer is yes. Here's what it says. Here's Asa's dad. He walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Now we get to 2 Chronicles 14, 1, and we get to meet Asa. And what you're expecting as the reader is that Asa is going to take the evil and the sin and the wickedness of his fathers, and he's going to accumulate it. And here's what it says, chapter 14, verse 1, Abijah, Asa's dad, slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land had rest for 10 years. Here it is. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. You, the reader, should stop right here and ask this question. What happened? What changed? I mean, generation after generation, the entire nation has given itself over to evil. What happened in the heart of Asa? And what can be the effect if I could be that person who changes the generational trajectory in my family? I am amazed how many people I speak to. You are, you are that first generation of believers, and you have changed the eternal destinies and the present lives of so many people more than you can possibly imagine. I love this. What happened? How, does you, how do you go from full-on rebellion, worshiping false gods and goddesses, male cult prostitution, how do you go from such debauchery to wholeheartedly, faithfully following God? And I'll just say this, it takes one generation, it takes one person, it takes one person in a family for God to pluck them out and change the eternities and the destinies of an entire generation to come to change the lives of hundreds of people. You make one disciple of Jesus you know what disciples do? They make disciples. FYI. I don't know if you knew that, but that's one of the things disciples do. And they make disciples. And those disciples make disciples. One human being can transform the destinies, the eternal destinies of hundreds or thousands of people within their lifetime. Isn't that cool? So here's what happens. I pray for somebody. Or I'm pleading with somebody. And I'm looking at them, and I want them to come to Jesus. And here's what goes often in my brain. I am not pleading for this person alone. I am pleading for this person's sons, their daughters, their grandsons, their granddaughters, their great-grandsons, their great-granddaughters, 
No human being is an island. These people, when they come to faith in Jesus Christ, statistically speaking, they're going to raise children who love Jesus, okay? And so here's what I do. I see these people and I'm thinking to myself, it's not just about you. You coming to Jesus is so much bigger than you and your life and your salvation. It is about your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids. And this is what goes through my mind. It's like, man, imagine what could happen if this person became a disciple of Jesus, how many lives underneath them could be transformed. So here's a simple thing I want to do this morning is I want to just talk to you about how Asa changed his family trajectory. I want to show you how one man can have and leave a legacy that affects thousands and thousands of people because he was faithful to God. So we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 14. I have to give you one caveat here. Um, You'll see in your notes it's set up sort of like a list Uh, This is not a list for you to go home and do, okay? This is not like a a to-do list. Uh, My my hunch is that um, with every one of you, there are going to be one or two things that pop out of this that the Lord is going to press onto your heart and say, I just want want you to focus here. Um, Hey, FYI, like you're doing good in some areas, but this is something that I want you to really dig deep in. I want you to pray about. I want you to change this or adjust this. So for most of you in this room, if you're a believer in Jesus, my hunch is that there's going to be something, not everything, something that the Holy Spirit's going to draw out. So get out of your mind. This is a list. Ask yourself this simple question. Holy Spirit, which one of these is the most pressing for me today? Because let's be honest, can you obey all these things all at once? I mean, just look at the outline. You can't. That's ridiculous. Um, But what you can do is go before the Lord and say, show me. Um, I have a humble heart, God. I'm being teachable today. Show me what you want. So number one, how do you change your generational trajectory? Number one is rid your life of every single idol. Brianne's youth pastor, at the, she grew up here at the Village Church, my wife, and uh, he would ask a question, <clears throat> and here was a version of the question. Am I celebrating or being entertained by something Jesus had to die for? Am I celebrating or being entertained by something Jesus had to die for? If so, what will my children do when they see me celebrating or being entertained by it? Answer, Village Church, they repeat it, and they usually go deeper. That is the rhythm. Kids take the sins of their fathers, and they go deeper with them. And so you and I, we get to step back in our lives, and we get to say, where are the idols in my life? Because we have blind spots, right? We don't always see all of the idols. And if God revealed every idol of our hearts simultaneously, gosh, I don't know about you, I'd be crushed, okay? Sometimes, though, the Lord brings up something. And he's like, you know, this, this, this is more important than me. This does not please me. This is something that you are being entertained by or you're celebrating that my son had to go to the cross for to pay for it. So here's an idea. Believer in Jesus, if you love the cross, if you love my son, get rid of, eradicate the things that are not bringing glory to him. If it is explicitly celebrating or entertaining you and it's explicitly something Jesus had to die for, then just get rid of it. Well, here's what happens in verse three. He, Asa, took away the foreign altars in the high places and broke down the pillars and he cut down the ashram. Now before him, I mean, from Solomon all the way to the present day, we're talking like 100 plus years, the people of Israel have been worshiping false gods, worshiping these crazy, crazy things, male call prostitution, Asherah poles, crazy things. And so he finally steps back and he has some kind of encounter with God. It says, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to set a different trajectory here. And what is the first thing that somebody does when they come to faith in God? You get rid of all of your known idols. 
You get rid of everything in your life that is not pleasing to God, that is something Jesus had to die for, that explicitly glorifies, in their case, false gods, and in your case, it's going to be glorifying immorality, which is typically how um, some of the challenges that we have in 21st century. I want you to notice a couple things from verse 3. Number one, he did not just avoid them. He took them away. Number two, he didn't give them away. He broke them into pieces. I mean, this is a public statement of repentance. Do you see how intense he is about this? Now, in the book of 1 Kings, we learn a little bit more about King Asa. In 15, I want to read to you what happened. 1 Kings 15, 10. Asa reigned for 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David his father had done. He put away the male called prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. So good job, King Asa. We're proud of you. Great. But here's this problem. Maacah, his mother, his grandmother, actually, is the queen mother. This is an incredibly authoritative position. Um, Many scholars think that she was a priestess in the Asherah religion. I mean, she was leading the people from the throne into immorality publicly. And FYI, as the nation goes, so goes the people. There we go. Or as the kings go, so goes the nation. Sorry. And so here's what we find in verse 13. But he also removed Maacah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. I want you to notice this. This is his grandma. This is personal. Do you see that? Right? What do you do when you come to Christ, right, in this circumstance, when you come to follow God and uh, you have this kind of sin going on in your own home, he doesn't just tolerate it, right? He doesn't just throw it away. He doesn't just break it. He actually burns it and then puts the ashes in the river. I mean, is this a public statement? And this, this is such beautiful proof that Asa's heart at this time was fully after the Lord. He didn't want to just bypass it. He didn't want to just break it and see the pieces. He wanted nothing to do with it because when people come to new life in Christ, this is one of the most beautiful opportunities to get rid of the junk, to start over. Okay, number two. Preach what you practice. I do not mean practice what you preach. That's obvious. Preach what you practice. So you come to Jesus Christ, and God starts to transform your life. And your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids, they watch this. Our temptation is to be passive when it comes to talking about Jesus. I don't know why. It's a cultural thing here. And here's what I want to just tell you. You cannot assume your grandkids, great-grandkids, or children will follow your behavior because they just watch you if you're, if you're walking in righteousness. You must plead with and proclaim to them your God, who he is, why he's worthy of being followed. It must be explicit. So the heart will follow immorality. But the heart will not follow your morality towards Jesus Christ in the same way. Okay? So if you want their hearts to follow your way of life in Christ, it must be accompanied with overwhelming, regular, and consistent pleading, preaching, and teaching your children. You cannot just stop and say, oh, just, just watch, watch me and you'll figure it out. The heart is wicked. 
Our heart is prone towards sin. And so therefore, as grandparents and parents, what we need to do is fight and plead with and talk about Jesus. And they roll their eyes. Well, big deal. Keep preaching and do it in a way that is loving and honoring. But we have to figure it out. Now, I want to just read verse 4 for you. And it says, And Asa commanded Judah to seek the Lord. Anybody want to take your kids and command them to seek the Lord? Right? You seek the Lord. It's a command. I'm the king. Do what I say. The God of their fathers. And he commands them to keep the law and the commandment. Verse 5. He also took out of all the cities of Judah and the high places and the incense altar. So I want you to just catch this for a moment. He does not look at them and say, hey, it's cool if you don't. I just want to be real sensitive and cool. You know, like, take your time, figure it out. It's no big deal. I mean, it's just, it's like, I know you're on your own journey, so you kind of just do your thing. Is that how Asa preaches and approaches those who are under his jurisdiction? No. I want to read you a passage from Acts 17, and I hope, if anything, here's, here's what this does. This lights a little fire under your butt and lets you know that the, the stakes are far too high for ambivalence. If hell is real, and if Jesus is the only way of salvation, pushing him aside and postponing, postponing him is not an option. So Acts 17, this is how Paul preaches. The times of ignorance God overlooked. Can anybody claim ignorance? Say no. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. I mean, do you feel the weight of this gospel proclamation? He commands... This is not an option. All people, everywhere to repent. So the Christian message, it's it's interesting, but there's a sense in which it's, no, the command of God is to repent. It is not an option. And if you don't repent, okay, then God casts you off. But here's the command. You must repent. So I imagine my kids, kids, you can't not repent. There's too much at stake. Jesus has provided forgiveness and salvation. Come to him. There's way too much at stake, more than I could ever possibly tell you. And then he goes on, he says this in Acts 17, 31. Why? Why should you repent? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given full assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I don't know about you. I don't, I don't know how all the time necessarily to approach commanding repentance, right? But I think here's a better way to say it. One way would be to look at your kids and say, take your time, no big deal. And the other way maybe might be to say to them, look, I want to just have a serious conversation. I can't make you believe something you don't believe, but you cannot postpone thinking about this. I plead with you and I beg with you because if God and the Bible are true, you don't know the day he's appointed. And so you plead. And they may shun you. You can't change the heart, right? I mean, how many of you want jurisdiction over your kids' and grandkids' hearts? Give me a right, amen, right? You don't have it, but you can plead. And you can go before the Lord and pray, maybe with a little bit more intensity, a little bit more differently, right? Because what's at stake here is not just this kid or this man or this grown adult or this woman, right? What is at stake are generations following this person. That's what's at stake. Get your brain out of the small triteness of it's just this human. It is much bigger than that, and the implications are far too big for us to just say, eh, it's really not that big of a deal. I don't want to put any pressure on you. I personally don't have any hesitation saying, I can't change your heart, but what I can tell you is you don't have the option logically to postpone this, because even if there's a 2% chance it's true, you don't want to roll those dice. You must 
pursue this and figure out if God is really who he says he is. Number three, redeem peacetime. And the kingdom, verse five, had rest under Asa. He built fortified cities in Judah for the land had rest. He had no war in those years for the Lord gave him peace. Okay, so when things are good, when life is easy, what do we do spiritually? We relax, put our guard down. I think what Asa does is so genius because the Lord gives him this season of peace. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't, but if you have it, this is not the season to relax. This is the season to build fortifications and boundaries and gates around the souls of those who are under your leadership. So here's the deal. Peacetime assumes that war is coming. And if you don't prepare in peacetime, you will not be prepared for the war. So in my home, this is a little metaphor, but my little kingdom of Israel is my family. And here's what I know. I've got pre-adolescence in my house. This is as easy as it gets, right? Amen from every mom and dad. I was a youth pastor for like 10 years, and I'm like, man, junior hires and high schoolers are emotional, but that's fine. War is coming in my home, (laughs) okay? I know this. And here's here's what I also know. I have to redeem this peacetime. This is my little kingdom. These are my people. This is what I'm responsible. This is, I'm the Asa here, and I gotta take this, and I need to build in them every fortification, every boundary I can, so that when the war comes, I've done everything I can. Now, when the war comes, can I make them face the enemy and fight? No. Can I make them love it? No, but I can give them everything they need to be prepared to battle. So here's what happens in verse seven. He said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers and gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. God, We have sought him and he has given us peace on every side. So they built and they prospered and Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah armed with large shields and spears and 280,000 men from Benjamin that carried shields and drew bows and these were mighty men of valor. Our tendency is to relax, but what Asa understands is that if I'm going to lead and protect this kingdom for generations to come, in peacetime, I have to build the fortifications necessary to prepare my people for the war that's coming. And point number four, the war comes. Redeem great difficulty. Verse nine, Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them. We need to just catch the weight of this with an army of a million men. How many does Israel have? Just above 500,000. How would you feel about fighting if you were an army of 500,000 up against an army of a million? (laughs) I don't know about you, but like, I would be really grateful that I was prepared for this battle. I'd actually be angry at Asa if this battle came and I wasn't prepared, right? Which, by the way, is what we find with kids who grow up out of their homes and their mom and dad didn't prepare them for life. They're angry at them. Just FYI. So how would you respond? You have a million people. Now, the next line is hilarious. 300 chariots. Don't you feel like it should be like 30,000 chariots? Like this is the dinkiest number of chariots I've ever seen in scripture. It's like a million men and 300 chariots. Okay, great. Um, How would you respond if you were Asa? Panic, anxiety, compromise. I mean, what do you do when there is insurmountable difficulty right in front of you? Right? You don't have any idea how you're going to get out of this. For these 500,000 men, the insurmountable difficulty is a torturous death and losing their land. That's what this is. Their families and their children becoming slaves. Our difficulties are nothing compared to what Asa and his men are going through, by the way. I mean, they just make our small problems look so trite. But here's a general rule for you. 
great difficulty is always an amazing opportunity to put God on full display. When your life goes through great difficulty, people watch. We love train wrecks. We love hardships. We love watching it, right? You're not going to acknowledge that, but you do. You want to know what's going on. You're checking Facebook to see the updates. You got it. We watch train wrecks. We watch difficulty. And every difficulty you experience is an amazing opportunity to put God on full display. Every time. Redeem it. So what does Asa do? Verse 10. Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zephathah and Merishah. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God. What do you do when you are in great difficulty and great distress? Because your kids are watching you, your grandkids are watching you, your friends are watching you, your non-Christian friends are watching you. You publicly cry out to God. You go to the Lord because only he, only he can get you out of this. There is no hope apart from him. Okay, let's be honest. Asa could have ran, but guess what? Would the million men have caught up with him? Yeah, you can run, but it's certain death in his circumstance. Or you can stand toe-to-toe with your greatest difficulty, and then you get on your knees and you say, Jesus, only you can do this. I love this. This is modeling for 500,000 men what relying on God looks like in the most painful and difficult of circumstances. And do you think these 500,000 men are going to watch and learn from this and be inspired? You better believe it. Let's see what happens. Verse 11, Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help. These aren't just like little truisms he's saying. This is his gut preaching. This is his heart between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So, verse 12, the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. I love this. I want to see a million people flee. I don't know. It just sounds cool to me. But Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, and the Ethiopians fell until none remained alive. Pop quiz, how many people died this day? A million people. For they were broken before the Lord and his army, and the men of Judah carried away very much spoil, and they attacked all the cities around Gerar, for the fear of the Lord was upon them. When you are in great difficulty and the war comes and you're prepared, they've done everything they need to do, but the one thing he does is he leads by getting on his knees in prayer. And do you think this was just a private prayer? Somehow this was public and it was recorded and people saw it and people heard it. So all of those under them came before the Lord in this great difficulty and they pleaded with God. I love this. So great. Number five, never stop repenting. So for those of you who are mature in the faith, you've been walking with Jesus 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years maybe, I've got good news for you. You have not arrived yet. You are not the most mature that you will ever be. Jesus is not done with you. There are still idols to uncover. There are still parts of your heart that are untended. There are still weeds that are growing up, and they may be under the surface, and the roots may be getting deeper. You may not be able to see it, but there are still problems there. One of the challenges of being mature for decades is that you find it is easy to go into autopilot, 
And when you're 80, having walked with the Lord for 60 years, and you go into autopilot, will that go well for you? No. And so from the day you trust in Christ until the day you die, autopilot is not an option. It's not an option because our flesh is that powerful. And here's the deal. As old as you get, you will keep struggling and you will sin and your ability to repent will be one of the most beautiful and compelling things for the generations underneath you to watch. Second Chronicles 15, verse 1. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed, Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of, all the, inhabitants of the land. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. He's basically saying, Asa, don't, don't go that path. It doesn't work for anybody, okay? Be faithful to God. He goes on in verse 7. But you... Take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. I want you to catch this. Why, why is this prophet confronting or encouraging or exhorting Asa? I mean, things seem to be okay. I mean, Asa is winning battles. He's gotten the idols out of the country, the high places, the Asherah, his mother Maacah. I mean, what is going on here? And I'll tell you what's going on. Sometimes God brings a word to you, an encouragement to you, right before he knows you're going to need it. He might bring a prophetic message to you, just from God, for you, right? The word of God is preached, and you're hearing this, and you're thinking, yeah, 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 I know that. But what you may not know is that that message that you just heard, that you apparently mastered, is preparation for a war or a battle or a great difficulty that is a day or a week or a month around the corner. And so sometimes we will get these encouragements where God will say, listen, keep it up, keep it up, don't let go, don't forsake this, keep going, this is worth it. Yeah, 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 we're doing fine, I got it, I've been good. And you have no idea what war, what battle, what difficulty is around the corner. So when I go and I hear other people preach, I have to tell myself this. Uh, Michael, this may be a message just for you And you may think you know this already, but this might be preparation for something you're about to face. So listen carefully. And so I don't know in this whole message, right, what God, what one point God is asking, just poking at you, provoking, and saying, this is is for me. Maybe you're doing good now, but something's about to happen where you needed this encouragement. And we're going to see what happens here. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Obed, he took courage... Now, you might be tempted to read over this, but I want you to listen. He took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. So You've got to stop here for a moment because I thought he already got rid of the idols. I thought he already got rid of the stuff. Well, where did it come from? It came from two places. Number one, the people started defaulting. Right? They started defaulting back to their idolatrous ways. And also, they took new land, and with new land were the false idols that had not been taken down yet. 
And so very simply, here's what happens. Asa's doing awesome. He's doing his job. He's winning battles. But we have these blind spots. We have these little things in our life or big things where God's like, look, you're doing awesome. But have you ever noticed that the altar and the temple has not been even addressed and that it's in shambles? Oh, I didn't, I didn't even realize that. And so here's what happens for Asa, the mature king, right? All of a sudden, God comes in and he's like, yeah, you're good, but you have a long way to go. And so what does Asa do? He realizes he needs to repent again because he thought he already got the idols out of his life and now they're back in it and he didn't even see it coming. He didn't even notice they were there. He didn't even notice they're in his land. He didn't even notice that there were more high places. He goes to the temple to worship, somehow doesn't even notice that the altar isn't functioning right. You see this? And so if God, again, showed you everything wrong in your life right now, every idol that needed to be killed, would it crush you? Oh my goodness, God is so patient. And he just reveals things to us one at a time, one after another, as long as we shall live. And here's the question. As you get older and more mature, will you still continue to publicly repent? So here's what he does. He goes public with his repentance. Number six, he gathered all Judah and all Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing with them. For great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. And they gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year in the reign of Asa. And they sacrificed to the Lord on that day from the spoil they had brought 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. This was a public rededication service. And as an act of repentance, he didn't just go private and say, I'm going to deal with this. He made sure that the entire nation knew what he had done, that they had gotten rid of these, they repaired the altar, and in honor of what they had done, they had a huge celebration on the altar, and they sacrificed a lot of animals. I think it comes out to, what's the total number? 7,700 animals as a celebration of his public repentance. If you want generations to follow your trajectory, as long as you shall live, public repentance will be one of the most meaningful and life-changing tools in your toolbox. And it's got to be genuine. Our kids see through it when it's not real. And your repentance is not a guarantee of perfection. It's an acknowledgement of what wasn't and a commitment to a trajectory of faithfulness to God. I want you to see that. If you look at your kids and say, I'll never do that again, statistically speaking, you will, right? What you can tell them is, this is sin. I want to call it out. I want to own it. And I want to begin a new trajectory. Would you be gracious and patient with me as I move in this new direction? And I'll tell you, that is a beautiful thing, and it trains your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren what a heart after God really looks like. So, so what? Your final point, your conclusion in here, is with God, A, you take your pick. You, whatever leadership or jurisdiction that you have that's underneath you, it could be your nation, a community, your family, you fill in the blank. For me, I think really just about my family. With God, my family can turn on a dime. When God enters into a circumstance, he can literally take one human and transform an entire family on a dime and generations after that. And so my encouragement for you as we look at the first half of Ace's life is this guy changed the entire direction of his family and the generations of families alive at this time. And I want to read to you the commitment that they made in verse 12 to 15, and then we'll close. And they entered, all of Israel, at this massive new repentance ceremony. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart 
and with all their soul, but that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting, with trumpets, with horns, because when you come to Jesus Christ and you commit yourself to him and you become a part of the new covenant, what do you do? You celebrate, right? Amen? That was weak, but amen? Amen. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they, for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire, and he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. Let's pray together. Father, um, I, I just am so grateful that you entered into my mom's life in the 80s, and through that one intervention, you used her faithfulness to transform so many eternities. I'm blown away by that. Lord, I heard the gospel from her. And Lord, I've been able to give it away. Lord, my brothers heard the gospel from her and they've been able to give it away. Lord, the just picture of this is so inspiring. God, you have wired us to care so desperately about our own legacies. And so God, may we be infinitely more concerned about our sons and daughters and grandchildren and great-grandchildren about their spiritual legacy more than their financial legacy. So God, all of that effort that we take into building all of these morals and ways of life, may we take that same amount of energy, if not more, and invest it into those who are under our care, under our leadership, who look up to us anywhere in the family line. God, I pray, God, that you would teach us, inspire us, equip us, show us, show us how to train up those next generations. Father, our desire is to be wholehearted followers of Jesus. And Lord, it's easy to start off strong. And as we will see next week with Asa, it's easy to to land poorly. But God, our desire is that you would preserve and protect us. You would expose the areas of our life where we need to repent. God, I know that with everyone here, you're doing a different thing. There's one or two things you're going to pull out. Lord, may you give us not just the ability to see what those are, but would you grant us the courage and the humility to begin to change those. So God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen, amen. amen.